As I'm getting situated, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We continue to uh, work our way through this chapter of Ephesians as uh, we find ourselves here and this section of Ephesians, which um, I've cataloged as the earthly witness to the exalted Christ. And he's bringing that uh, to a crescendo here at the end of chapter three. And we will be in the middle of chapter three, but he's heading towards this idea that in uh, the presence of the church is the glory of the exalted Christ. He does so by explaining the unfathomable riches of Christ that have come to the Gentiles and the glories being fulfilled to a restored Israel. This is what the Lord is doing as he sits on high. He's bringing about all that has been promised in him. That even in him that there would be those that were considered aliens Strangers have now been brought near and are considered fellow citizens. And even beyond that, saints of the household of God. So read along with me or follow along as I read for us. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 to verse 14. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Indeed, if you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was what was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you do not you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Well, let us do likewise and pray before we continue on. Oh, Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that you would help us this morning, that you help us overcome our many frailties, our many 
shortcomings, our many mortalities that prevent us from fully grasping what you have for us. And yet, Lord, we come in anticipation, knowing full well that you will fulfill your promise that your word would not return void, and that you have prepared for us this meal of your word. I pray that as we eat well, you would also bless it to the nourishment of our souls. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to thank Pastor Dana for starting my sermon earlier as he spoke out of Acts uh, in reference to the sufferings of God's people, in reference to that we come and apprehend the kingdom of God the same way that our Savior apprehended glory and a name above all names, and that is through suffering and affliction. We find that in Scripture, suffering and affliction comes through many means. Oftentimes, uh, through the persecutions of this world. Many times, through suggestion and taunts of the evil one and his uh, legion. But even if we were to close out both of those uh, from our influence or from influencing us, we would still be left with ourselves. And we find that much of our suffering and affliction is due to our flesh. And so though we may not be held in contempt of this government to be arrested and thrown into chains, though we may not find uh, that uh, there is a demon-possessed person outside our doors waiting to have us or some other uh, form of satanic oppression, we do find that every day we struggle at the suggestion and deceitful desires of our flesh, whereby we find ourselves even at times giving in to those deceitful desires, showing uh, that we have yet to be fully free of um, this passenger that we call our old nature, our sin nature, the flesh. So this morning as we approach Ephesians chapter 3, specifically verses 12 through 14, I hope that we would take much encouragement to understand how our suffering and affliction plays into the Lord's plan how we could in some ways hold to it as a joy, in some ways consider it as a glory, uh, a potential glory to others. So as we've been looking at this section in chapter 3, these first uh, 13 verses, and we'll include verse 14 this morning, but as we've been looking at these first 13 verses, we've seen them as a, as a digression from his prayer that begins in verse 14, for they both start with the same phraseology. For this reason, I, Paul, in Ephesians 3.1, Ephesians 3.14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. We see that this digression can be divided into three categories. What moved in Paul to digress from his prayer had a context. We recognized its content, and this morning we'll look at its consequence. 
We saw that in verses 1 through 7, we, we got an idea of the context of Paul's digression. It was the ministry given to him by Christ to go and preach his gospel to the Gentiles by revelation. And hopefully we were encouraged that by that we may have assurance of our faith grounded in Scripture. That what we see in Scripture, we hear from the Lord. So we need not go to speculations. We need not go to um, emotional prompts or even uh, mental anguish over whether or not uh, we find ourselves following a voice of the Lord. We were encouraged to read our scriptures, to apply them to our lives, and to trust the Lord that we would do well in doing that. Last week, we saw that in verses 8 through 11, we uh, took a look at the content of his digression. And that being revealed, or that being the gospel, and we looked at the gospel as being revealed in those three uh, salutai. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but salutitis is, I'll, I'll leave Latin to uh, my daughters. But it was the pactum salutis, the historia salutis, and the ordo salutis. Those three, and why even bother with the Latin is because uh, if you ever engage in historical theology where you read of those that have gone before us, and I encourage you to do so, they refer to these uh, three ideas of the gospel. The gospel revealed in the eternal compact or the eternal pact between the Godhead whereby they decreed salvation to men. And then the Historia Salutis, whereby there was going to actually be a, a historical, creaturely playing out of that pact in the history of salvation, not only in the incarnation, but from the very beginning of creation itself. And then finally, how the Lord applies both these things into our lives through means and through ways in the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, where we find uh, that we receive all the benefits of Christ the moment we are united to him, though we may not sense it uh, in the same, in the same uh, intensity through the life of our faith. For if you are young in your faith, and if you are a young one, you may not have uh, been tested in your faith. You may find that you go along with what your parents say, but you know in your heart that you believe it, yet it hasn't been tested. So there's some uh, logical understanding why there may be a lack of zeal. Though the Lord will provide it over time, I know in my own life I've found great encouragement that as the Lord has brought me through trials and tribulation, the zeal for the Lord by the work of the Spirit has increased in my life. So, uh, may we not be so discouraged that the zeal seems to be lacking. For if the Lord has worked in you true faith, the zeal will come according to his promises. But this morning we turn our attention to the consequence of what Paul has been digressing about. What has the reality of this gospel? What has the setting of him bringing it to the Gentiles produced in Paul? 
What is the consequence of that? Well, this morning we're going to look at, the, at this idea under three headings. Under the heading of privilege, perseverance, and prayer. Verse 12, uh, the idea of privilege jumps out at us through these substantives that Paul uses. One commentator recognized that Paul uses these three words of boldness and confidence and access because there isn't just one word. There wasn't one Greek word or even as we know Paul, there wasn't one Greek word that he could invent that would encapsulate the access that we have now in Christ to the Father. And we should see this as a great privilege. What enables anyone, Jew or Gentile, to have access to God with boldness and confidence rather than fear and shame? You know, oftentimes we take it for granted that we bow our knees in prayer and that God hears our prayer. That, uh, that there is a time when uh, we will go on to meet our maker, as it's said, and stand before, before uh, the one true and living, holy, in, uncorruptible God. And yet Paul is saying that we may have boldness and confident access to him. It is one of the main tenets of understanding the gospel. Do we stand assured of our faith based on our merit or upon, or upon some future merit that we will earn? Do we stand in this confidence because we know we will do better tomorrow? That we will apply ourselves with greater intensity in a, in a future date or even from that point forward. I recommit my life to you. I promise I won't screw up again. Or is this boldness and confident access based on an alien merit? A merit that is applied to us, imputed to us through faith. Well, it is faith in Christ. It is faith alone in Christ. It is faith alone in Christ alone. It's rooted in the grace of God alone. And this enables us to draw near to God in full assurance of faith. This privilege that we have to draw near to God we read of in our scripture, Old Testament reading scripture this morning. We read of access to God, although in the opposite, those that were denied access to God. And what, what mourning would have been upon the person who was unclean, upon the person who, who had a disease of the flesh, who could not participate in the holy worship of God. They didn't have access They couldn't boldly come before God and even those that were granted access through that type and shadow of the altar had to go and have access through the death of a bull or a goat or a lamb. And it was temporary access. It was access for that moment. For they were going to go and they would sin again and what would it be required again is another sacrifice. 
Another sacrifice would have to be brought again so that they would be granted access. This was the reality of the life of the Jew in the Old Covenant. Not to mention the reality of the Gentile. Now, I don't believe there were people outside the camp of Israelites knocking on the door saying, what's going on in there? I really wish I could be a part of the party. And the Jews say, nah, you can't be here. But as the Gentiles came to come exposed to the gospel, and even we see this in uh, type and shadow and even uh, in substance in ways in the Old Testament where we have Gentiles being grafted into the body of believers such that uh, in the genealogy of Christ, there are Gentile women that are brought into the genealogy of the Messiah. But they had no access at all. Sure, certainly, they, there were those exceptions of proselytizing and, and becoming a Jew and those things, but we see that in the Gentile court. They could only go so far, and they had to stop. And yet, here Paul is saying to these same Jews and these same Gentiles that in Christ we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. It's an amazing privilege. Paul emphasizes and reaffirms, making sure that our minds are recentered on Christ. He says, in whom? He doesn't want us to go even one verse here as he explains this privilege. In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Here, Paul, like he does in the previous chapter, summons the Ephesians to look beyond what can be seen by their mortal eyes and see with the eyes of faith the heavenly reality of their access to the Father. This is a heavenly reality that we have access, we have confident, we have boldness and confident access to the Father in Christ. Paul does not want us to forget that as we enter into the sufferings and trials of this life, that there is a heavenly reality playing out. And in that heavenly reality, we have confident access. We can approach the King of Kings with boldness. We know from Old Testament narrative in Esther they were fearful to approach that king, that earthly king. Don't go in there unless you have his permission. Don't go in there unless he's invited you. Certainly don't go in there with boldness and confident access. But here, from the lesser, the very, very lesser, to the greater, we have access to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings to the one who sits in the heavens above all ruler and rulers and authority, and he laughs, for he holds them in derision. And we must confess, we must see that this confident access is not according to merit that we supply. 
but the infinite merit of an infinite Savior. Consider that you would even think of your merit in any way connected to, or in any likeness to Christ, for our merit seems like a flash in the pan, or it, it, it shows great light in the moment and then quickly fizzles. As if you're anything like me, you may become quickly proud of that action, of that good work. And so we see it fizzle away right before our eyes. No, our merit is infinite merit. Our merit is infinite merit because our Savior is an infinite Savior. This is the consequence by which we have bold, by, by which Paul was preaching his gospel, this unfathomable riches of Christ. What is the consequence of being united to this Savior is that we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. How does this drive us on? This becomes this kind of boiling uh, reality for us where God works in us this assurance of faith and produces in us perseverance. He says, Therefore, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. We'd already made connection in a previous sermon how we saw in the book of Acts where Paul, preaching to the Gentiles, had landed him in hot water with the Jews, such that the Jewish leaders went and sought to have him arrested. They, they gave bear, bore false witness against him such that he was arrested by the Romans and carried off to prison. And here he says that they would not lose heart at his tribulations. For they were on their behalf and they were for their glory. This is, can be deeply challenging to us here in our current context. For we hear of believers in prison, suffering for the sake of the gospel. We read of the headlines recently of a pastor in Canada who uh, gets hauled away for opening his church to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. We know there were many more who don't get the press like that pastor, who live in nations like North Korea and China and the Middle East where to name Christ and to worship him openly will land you squarely at odds with the government and the governmental authorities. We know and have heard accounts or I have heard of accounts of, of Hindu zealots dragging off pastors in India, holding them in prison and hostage and seeking harm of not just them, but threatening if they don't recant of Christ that the same will come of their wife and their children. And what is our first instinct? It's certainly to cry to the Lord to rescue them and restore them to their loved ones and to the church. And it's a natural instinct. And we should recoil at persecution. We should never consider it courageous or bold to egg it on, to bring it upon ourselves, though it will 
come upon us and though uh, we find ourselves oftentimes at odds or we may find ourselves we don't glory in it so it's natural for us to recoil from it and pray for the release of these uh, prisoners but we should also consider and bless the Lord who works all things together for the good of his people who is pleased in his gracious love to ordain suffering in order to bring glory to his children. We understand that that is easier said than done. But if we are to look at our Savior, if we are to see by his example, we may be encouraged to do the like. John's gospel in chapter 12 records these words of our Savior. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It is our gospel privilege to reflect this mind in us which was first found in our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are not found in prisons, political prisons, religious prisons. We find ourselves being able to worship openly as of now, but as I said, suffering and affliction comes not only by the hand of this world, it comes also by the evil one in our flesh. So we may take encouragement from Paul's confidence here in his suffering and affliction. And it was something that he sought to encourage many of the people he had written to. He assured the Philippians that his imprisonment had turned out for their furtherance, turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He told the Colossians that he rejoiced in his sufferings for their sake. And here he tells the Ephesians that his suffering was their glory. Later on, to the man he would send to the Ephesians, Timothy, he encouraged that though he had to suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, the word of God is not chained. He assured the Philippians that they were partakers with him of God's grace both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so we may take comfort that as we see Paul confident that the Lord will use his tribulation for the furtherance of his glory, we too should take encouragement of the same. For Paul does as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're able, you can flip your Bibles over there. I just have uh, a couple verses to read there in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But you can see in verse, uh, beginning of verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul sees that our afflictions and sufferings 
are so that we would draw to the God of mercies and to the God of comfort so that one day we might be better suited to point another believer to the same God of mercies, to the same God of comfort. Because we may take solace to understand that so as our Savior suffered, so shall we. One commentator said, not only does the incarnate king suffer before entering into his glory, but this proves to be a paradigm for his subjects who also experience momentary afflictions and then find that those afflictions are a pathway to heavenly and eternal bliss. Paul Gerhardt was a 17th century Lutheran pastor. He pastored uh, near Berlin, and like many of his time period, his life was filled with grief. Having to bury a wife and only having one of his children live to adulthood, three having died in infancy. It is said that 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, as we read, is a fitting description of his life. And so in 1653, he penned a hymn, which I think is wholly in step with Paul's desire that the Ephesians would not lose heart at his trials. The first, first three standa, stanzas read, Why should cross and trial grieve me? Christ is near with his cheer. Never will he leave me. Who can rob me of the heaven that God's Son, for my own, to my faith hath given. God oft gives me days of gladness. Shall I grieve? If he gives seasons, too, of sadness, God is good and tempers ever all my will, and he will wholly leave me never. Death cannot destroy forever from our fears, cares, and tears. It will us deliver. In will close life's mournful story. Make a way that we may enter heavenly glory. I appreciate that he points out that even in our seasons of sadness, God is good and tempers even all my ill. Even all that ails us, God tempers it, for he is good. Oftentimes, it seems like if we were to liken that word to temperature, he makes it just a little hotter than seems comfortable. A little, uh, more heavy than it seems bearable. And yet, as it's been true in my life, we're able to look back and see that uh, we bore not that weight. Under our own strength, and it was not nearly as heavy as it could have been, nor as hot as it could have been, but it was a good weight to bear and it was a good heat uh, to encounter. And we should hear 
in Gerhardt's words, the echoing of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And it is fitting that we addendum this digression with the first words in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. The consequence of Paul's contemplation of these glories and riches in Christ, the contemplation of this boldness and confident access, the contemplation that he's using all tribulations in his life for the glory of Christ and his church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. The reason, as I've said, is the stupendous thing God has done in uniting Jew and Gentile in Christ through the cross. He bows his knees before the Father to pray that he would not root and ground this new cross-created humanity in the love of Christ, that he would root and ground this new cross-created humanity in the love of Christ. God had given Paul an unspeakable privilege of preaching among the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. The Ephesians were not to lose heart over Paul's suffering because it was the result of his being a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. Paul was writing a letter. Paul was not present with the Ephesians. He was not bearing their afflictions in person. He was not carrying their burdens alongside them in the flesh. He could not be there to know all that they were going through, to know all that they had encountered since his departing. But he did know that he could pray for them. He did know that he could bow his knees before the Father in heaven and be heard. And so we too may be separated from the Lord's people by distance, we may be ignorant of each other's sufferings or just feel inadequate to help. But we can always pray for one another. We can always bow our knees before the Father in heaven whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Christ. This consequence of what Paul understood to be the reality of what Christ was doing exalted on high in his church drew Paul to a position of prayer that wasn't the common position of prayer amongst the Jews. To pray was to stand and to open their open their arms to the Lord. It was the prayer of contrition. It was when they were in sackcloth and ashes that they would fall to their knees and prostrate themselves before the Father. Here Paul bows his knee, not in mourning, but in joy, in recognition of his utter dependence upon the Father. 
for he could not enact any amount of desired change in the Ephesians. He could not come alongside them in person and guide them. But he would confident hope that when he prayed for them, that he would do far more abundantly beyond all that was asked or that all that could be thought of it would be happen according to the power that was at work within them and at work within us who are united to Christ. Gerhardt's hymn ends in these two stanzas, Lord, my shepherd, take me to thee. Thou art mine. I was thine even ere I knew thee. I am thine, for thou hast bought me. Lost I stood, but thy blood, free salvation, brought me. Thou art mine, I love and own thee. Light of joy, ne'er shall I from my heart dethrone thee. Savior, let me soon behold thee face to face. May thy grace evermore enfold me. Let us pray. O Father in heaven, we give you praise this morning that we who were born wretches, that we who were born under the condemnation of Adam, who lived according to the desires and passions of our flesh, have been granted confident access to you, and we may approach you with boldness in the knowledge that we stand in the infinite merit of our infinite Savior. May our lives be reformed by this knowledge. May the Spirit of God work in us. The desire to give glory to you in all that we think, say, and do. For your glory alone. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.